join me in welcoming Heidi and Terry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Dylan, thank you so much, and thank you all so much for being here. This is a huge thrill. This is the first stop on our Writing While Female tour. It is also Terry's L.A. book launch, so this is really wonderful to have you here. We want to thank Dylan and everybody, and Stephen and, and Kelsey and everyone at Fabulous Skylight Books, which was recently chosen as one of the 28 coolest independent bookstores in the country. In the, yeah. in the country. So we are so, so, so thrilled to be here. And also from both of us, I just want to do a quick shout out. We have another fellow Amberjack author in the audience. Um, Terry and I know each other because we are both part of the Amberjack publishing family. And that is a huge, huge, huge thrill. And as I always say, um, it's not just that they're great at what they do. They're the most wonderful people in the, in the whole world. They are amazing. And then some. Yes. You and know. then some. Right. And then some. What we were thinking we would do, and please notice that I'm half Italian, so this is a lot of what I do with the, the the hands. Um, I'm going to read a little bit, and Terry's going to read from her wonderful book. I'm going to do a little introduction to your book before you read, okay? And then we're going to chat with each other, with you guys, and uh, just enjoy the world of literature and words and books and all of that. Um, a quick reading from Lala Pettibones Act Two, which came out in February of this year, the sequel. Uh, is coming out by Amberjack, Alala Pettibone, Standing Room Only, in the month of August, which is a lovely name for a month. Our friend August is here. She's also an Amberjack author. And I uh, just want to do a little, little, little bit of a reading, and then uh, well, I'll introduce Terry. Lala stared at her surroundings, entirely unseeing. Somehow, her hand found its way into her purse and grabbed her cell phone. And apparently, it then dialed Brenda's number, because Lala found herself listening to a ringing sound and then found herself hearing Brenda answer. Lala began to speak into her phone, in a normal volume, at first. Hi, Brenda. Can you talk? It was when Lala heard Brenda say yes, she was indeed available to have a conversation with her best friend since high school, that Lala began, gradually at first, and then with giddy momentum, to get louder and louder and louder. Want to hear something funny? Gerard has a girlfriend. I think that's hilarious. And get this, my first impression of her is that she's lovely. I swear, my initial thought when I realized what was going on between them was to suggest a three-way. <laughs> Everyone except Lala turned to look at Gerard, who wasn't nimble enough to quash the instant raising of his brows and the instant smile that wrapped itself around his mouth when he heard mention of a possible menage a trois. Her name is Marie-Laure. Lala yelped into the phone, oblivious to Gerard's facial thumbs up. How pretty is that? And there's more. She's not a cliche. She's not a... Lala swiftly cradled her cell phone between her shoulder and her chin and made air quotation marks. Young bimbo. She's my age-ish. So I can't even be pissed at him for being shallow or predictable. 
Everyone had exited the conference room as Lala's words grew ever more energetically unglued. I had some kind of scenario playing out in my head, Lala blared into her cell phone, in which Gerard and I had this kind of magical chemistry. And I never once asked myself why he hadn't made a move in ten months, because it played into my idea that this was somehow so special that it couldn't be besmirched with actual involvement with each other. And meanwhile, I'm a complete idiot, and none of what I'm imagining is true. And it's not his fault. He's a great guy. He never led me on. El Focus should get over myself. It was all in my big, stupid head. The isolation spell suddenly broke. Lala covered the phone and smiled and nodded toward one of her coworkers, who was looking at her with sympathy and horror. It's true. I have a freakishly large head. My late husband, God love him, used to say it's because I have so much brain matter in there because I'm so smart. Which, if that's true, has gotten me exactly nowhere, right? Huh? Right? Because seriously, it's freakish. When we were measuring our tets, that's French for heads, in high school for the caps and mortars, I'm guilelessly walking around announcing my head was 23 inches in circumference, like that's something normal. All my friends are looking at me like I'm a freak because their measurements are like 18 or 12 or something. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Um, This... I read this when the ARCs first came out, the advanced reading copy. I read it again this week in anticipation of this. I loved it even more the second time. Um, It's one of those books where when you're done, you think, I'm going to miss them. I miss those those characters. And with that, I want to introduce someone who has very quickly become just very, very, very dear to me, Terry Emery. Thank you. Thank you, and thank all of you for coming. And so Second Acts is a story about friendship. It tells the story of a lifelong friendship among three women who meet in college in a dorm room in Buffalo, New York in the late 60s. Anybody want to guess where I went to college? Yeah. Um, and so in the end, the book ends when the women are in their early 50s, and uh, it ends the year before 9-11, or, or just at 9-11, and in that year, each of them comes across an obstacle on the path she's been on and has to resolve it so she can move on to her second act, to her the next chapter in her life. And uh, they have relied on each other for decades, but this particular year, the friendship means more to them than ever. And so they, they have to learn um, learn from each other in a way that they never had before. Okay, the, the, the story is told, uh, each character, each of the three women tells her own story. So there were three narrators, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, nine, nine chapters. In the first section of the book, is there are a lot of flashbacks that let the reader know where these women have been, how they got to where they, they're going. So I'm going to read a little bit from each character a flashback from each one of them that tells you how she got to where she is. So the first narrator is Sarah Roth. She's divorced. She works as a corporate writer in order to support herself and her daughter. Uh, She's in Manhattan. Uh, Here Sarah talks about meeting her husband 20 years earlier and letting him talk her into leaving Manhattan at that time. I met Martin in Manhattan when I was 28. My apartment was a rent-controlled third-floor walk-up on the west side, an easy walk from the Café Luxembourg. I was working as a senior editor at the Abbott Literary Review, where I had just landed a plum assignment, a series of critical essays on the Algonquin Roundtable. 
Apart from my recurring fantasy of moving to Paris one day, I had never considered living anywhere but New York. I was also teaching a night class in fiction writing at the New School. My students were overprivileged and overwrought young adults recently out of college. Most still lived at home, but they thought of themselves as countercultural because they subscribed to Mother Jones and went to poetry readings in Hell's Kitchen. They dressed entirely in black, chain-smoked during the breaks, and fantasized about the life of the mind. Existentialists with trust funds. Even when their <clears throat> punctuation and Grammy were shoddy, their passion was real. I love their essays about alienation and ennui. I was ripe for marriage when Martin came my way. Both my mother and my hormones were sending me persistent messages about making babies, but I had not dated many promising candidates for fatherhood. Among my recent suitors were an ER physician who worked 70 hours a week and fell asleep in restaurants. <clears throat> and a, a struggling sculptor decided who decided he'd do well to return to his ex-wife, what with her trust fund and all, and a television producer with a rather expansive definition of fidelity. Martin introduced himself to me while we were waiting in line for tickets to an outdoor performance of Much Ado About Nothing in Central Park. He was 32 at the time, a public relations director at Chase Manhattan. We talked for an hour as the queue inched along. We exchanged business cards, and he called the next day to ask me out to dinner. I was grateful to spend an evening with a man who could stay awake all the way through dessert, who had no heiress girlfriend waiting in the wings, and who expressed reasonable interest in marriage and children. Six months later, Mar Martin proposed to me during intermission at a performance of a chorus line, and I said yes. Shortly after we were married, family connections led Martin to a lucrative job offer to be vice president of marketing at Fieldstone's Pub Fieldstone Public Relations in Acedia Bay, Florida, where his sister and family had lived for years. It's near Jacksonville, Martin said, as if he were talking about a sophisticated world capital. The climate is great. This is a good opportunity for me, Sarah, for both of us, really. To Martin, the decision to leave New York was an easy one. He had no family there, no friends either. Martin's relationships with other men were activity-specific. He was in a monthly poker game with some guys from his office. He played racquetball with one of our neighbors. He went to Yankees games with Al, someone he'd known since high school, but with whom, to my knowledge, he'd never had a conversation about anything except baseball. For Martin's purposes, any males willing to share his interests for limited segments of time qualified as friends. For me, though, it was hard to imagine living a plane ride away from everything and everyone I knew in New York City. My parents were still alive then. I could stop by their place for brunch any Sunday. Beth and Miriam, my best friends since we met in college, both lived near me in the city, and seeing them regularly was fundamental to my routine. I couldn't imagine the editor of a literary journal, like me, would find work in Acedia Bay, Florida. What kind of life would await me a thousand miles from the Strand bookstore in Balducci's? We can fly back as often as you like, Martin said, and won't Acedia Bay be a better place than Manhattan to raise a family? And so, I agreed to take a detour from the life I had always wanted. Okay, now here's a little insider thing. Acedia Bay, doesn't that sound like it would be a place in Florida? It sounds, has a Florida sound to it. Acedia is a really obscure word that means boredom. <laughs> okay. The next character to speak is Miriam Kaplan. 
she's a dedicated teacher who won recognition in New York for a film program she created in the middle school where she teaches. In fact, she often prefers movies to real life. Here she tells the story of a failed romance years earlier from which she has never recovered. His name was Peter. He was from Savannah. After trying out a long-distance relationship for a while, he invited her to move to Savannah while she was on sabbatical from teaching to see if they could live together. This passage begins with a phone call between Miriam and Beth about Peter's offer. Tell me everything. I want to hear it from you, Beth said. He wants us to try living together. It's all so crazy right now. I can't think straight. I love him, Beth, but he hasn't said he loves me. You know how men are, Beth said. Maybe he thinks he's just showing you he loves you by asking. I can't just walk away from this, but I need something more from him before I give up my life here. I can't go without some kind of commitment. Beth says, you don't have to give up your life. Why don't you go to Savannah with the idea that this is a rehearsal? Give yourself through, oh, say New Year's to see how it works. What have you got to lose? Well, on one hand it seems right, but maybe I'm just letting, you know, the romance of it guide me. Beth laughed. You're seeing yourself as a character in a movie, the romantic movie you've wanted to star in all your life. Look, if it turns out there's nothing lasting here, you'll know by New Year's. I don't want to encourage you to do something dangerous, but I think you'll regret it if you don't give this a try. I feel like I'm jumping off a cliff. Of course, you must. But we'll be here to catch you if need be. Don't you think it's incredible that you happen to be on your sabbatical right now and you're free to go? Maybe it's a sign from the heavens that this was meant to be. How comforting, Miriam says. The New York City public school gods are smiling on my love life. I packed a few cartons of my things, shipped them to Peter's house. I left my ficus tree in the contents of my freezer with Tom and Wayne next door. I filled out the post office form for forwarding my mail to Savannah, hesitating when I had to indicate if the change of address was temporary or permanent. I checked temporary, and on the line that said until what date, I wrote January 1st, which was exactly two months away. It's funny how memory works, how some events are preserved forever in your mind while others dissolve. Physical pain, for example, is an experience that can be remembered only secondhand. You'll pass out before agony devours you. The same is true of emotional trauma. Mother Nature eliminates the stinging sensations from your memory bank. You can talk about having been hurt, but you can't recreate the pain. Selective memory protects you doctors say. On the other hand, I remember almost every student I've taught. More than 20 years of young faces, smiling or sullen, and I can put a name to most of them. But much of the time I spent in Savannah, desperately hopeful and in love, is a blur of shapes and sounds that stubbornly remain out of my mind's reach. Like a narrator in my own life, I can recount a version of tender and happy moments with Peter, but I can't recreate the exact feelings. Like a patient who recovers from a gunshot wound, wound, I can talk about how I felt when the pain relented a little. The details are mostly lost, the fine print barely legible, yet a pervasive sorrow and jagged feelings like shards of glass still linger in my heart. What does that say about Mother Nature? And more, what does it say about me? Selective memory, I should like to tell the doctors, is sometimes not selective enough. Okay, that's, that's Miriam. Okay, and the third one is Beth. Uh, Beth Jacobs-Gillian. 
She's been married for many years to Jim, who's a successful Wall Street mogul. Uh, They have a lovely life. She studies art history in college, and later, after her children are in school, she earns a PhD and becomes a psychotherapist. Beth and Jim suffered a loss, the tragedy... Uh, a tragedy, the loss of their son. And Beth often finds herself thinking back to the college semester she spent studying art in Rome. There she fell in love for the first time. His name was Andrew. He was in Rome studying music. Beth loves her husband, but that time in Italy represents the kind of carefree happiness she no longer experiences. Here she's talking about Andrew and the summer after classes ended when they agreed to house it for a professor in order to prolong their stay in Rome. Andrew and I moved into Dr. Fabrizi's home right after classes ended. The palazzo, three stories high, was built in the 1850s and sat on a bluff overlooking the Tevere, the Tiber. Like so much else in Italy, the house was dazzling and full of maddening impracticalities. The exquisite marble floors throughout the place were cold and slippery, except where they were covered by Persian rugs so beautiful that Andrew and I hesitated to step on them. In each of the three bathrooms was a claw-footed bathtub with ornate brass fittings, but no shower. The kitchen countertops were inlaid with cerulean tiles, but the refrigerator held little more than one day's provisions for the two of us. Shopkeepers welcomed us to the neighborhood, proud to introduce us to specialties from their own regions of Italy. Tried this ricotta, made the same way my grandmother did in Sicily. This is how we cook steak in Firenze. Let me give you a recipe for the best doso buco, the Milanese way. Have you heard the legend about this frascati wine? Nowhere else existed for us. We didn't talk about the future. There was only our borrowed palazzo on borrowed time, an exhilarating adventure every time we walked out the door. We used our student IDs to get free concert tickets and cheap train fares. We hardly drove Dr. Fabrizi's Fiat. Gasoline was more expensive than train tickets. Although one afternoon, Andrew did insist upon taking the car out to quiet roads near Castel Gandolfo so he could teach me to drive a stick shift. Every car I've owned since then has had a manual transmission. As often as we could, we splurged on excursions out of town. We slept on lumpy mattresses and shared bathrooms with other travelers in cheap pensiones from Venice to Positano. We traipsed through palaces and ancient ruins, museums and vineyards. We toured artisan studios where sparkling Murano glass and delicate cameos and exquisite leather boots were still crafted by hand. Inside the Grotto Azzurro, the Blue Grotto, Andrew nearly capsized our tiny rowboat when he leaned over the side to retrieve a bracelet that had slid off my wrist into the phosphorescent water. On a narrow street in Naples, a small boy belted out, O sole mio! from the second floor window above his father's bakery and bowed to our applause with a sweep of his arm. Bravissimo, Andrew called to him. Che bella voce, what a beautiful voice. Che piacere, what a pleasure, what happy, how happy we were. And I, how I yearn for that life, my old life, when I believed the world was full of possibilities. What I wouldn't give to feel joyful and hopeful again, to feel for one hour the way I felt every day I spent with Andrew. Andrew, fluent in Italian and French, who sang arias to me in bed. Andrew, who three times hitchhiked from his college in Burlington to mine in Buffalo to visit me at school and meet my friends after we returned from Italy. Andrew, who in the end said he loved me 
but he just didn't ever want to be married. Andrew, who married someone else, just as I did not long after we parted. Andrew, who still owns a piece of my heart. The last time I heard news about him was 10 years ago. Sarah ran into him at O'Hare while traveling home from a business trip. He was a music professor at a small college in California, passing through Chicago on his way to judge a young composer's competition. He showed Sarah a photo of his two sons, though not his wife. Andrew looked the same, Sarah said, handsome and boyish. Sarah gave him an update on me. Two kids? A PhD? He said with admiration. Well, tell Dr. Jacobs, oh, I guess she's Dr. Gillian now, that I said, ciao. <laughs> now, those are the three characters. Before, this, this is not a segue. There's no segue here, but I want, I want to tell you something funny. Those... Oh, those of you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> those of you who, who use Word to write, as many people do, um, you know there's, a, there's a, a, something you can do if you decide you want to change a word throughout an entire, you want to change the color of the shirt from red to blue and you just tell it, find all the red and change it to blue. I changed the name of a character. And the character, I changed the name uh, from Chuck to Bruce. A minor character appears once in the book. And I wrote my lovely editor at Amberjack a, a note and said, please change, please change uh, Chuck to Bruce. And she did. So the character's name was changed, but two other changes happened. One is that on page 61 of the book, um, it's supposed to say, Peter chuckled when he saw, and now it says Peter Brusseld. I'm not kidding. It says Peter Brusseld. The thing is that, that you know, first editions with, with the mistakes in them are valuable, so hold on to your copy. The second thing is that the, I have a good friend whom I thank in my acknowledgement, somebody I've known since high school, and his name is Chuck Newman, but in the book he's Bruce Newman. I thank Bruce Newman, and when I, since I told him about it a um, month ago or so when I realized this was the problem, he has now taken to signing his emails Bruce. <laughs> Anyway, so that's... <laughs> and I, I love that Chuck is a name and a verb. It's a name and a verb. She yeah. bruised it out the she window. Bruised, yeah. yeah. A friend of mine yeah. who read who read the yeah. book wrote to me the other day and said, love the book. I bruised. I cried. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so so okay. we... Uh, uh, Terry, do you want to tell... Well, so you know this is the, the writing wall female tour because we're both wall female and um, I'm just going to tell that quick thing that always so John Irving is one of my favorite contemporary authors and I correct me if I'm wrong has anyone ever heard John Irving referred to as a male writer of men's fiction I just don't (laughs) think so now now you know Terry spoke of her three beautiful protagonists Lala is my protagonist I'm fairly sure John Irving's novels again I may be remembering this incorrectly, but I don't think I am. Um, They're all men. His chief protagonists are men. He does not write men's fiction. It drives us, I'm going to speak for both of us, it drives us nuts. And and Terry, would you like to tell everyone how it is that we came to to be be joined at the hip? Joined at the hip, yes. Uh, I, when I signed my contract with Amberjack, this wonderful independent publisher, I wanted to read some of the other books that they 
published, and I read Heidi's book. First of all, the title of her book, La La Pettibone's Act Two, and mine is Second Acts. This was interesting. So I bought the book and I read it, and I loved it. I loved it. Um, hers is a very different book from mine. It's a comic novel. It um, it is uh, if you've ever tried to write funny. I mean, you know how hard it is. But at the heart of this comic novel is uh, is, a, is a tragic and sad event that the that the protagonist has to get beyond and 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 figure out how to how to resolve her her life. And um, I thought it was so smart and so funny and so well done. And so I sent her a fan letter. Right. I love your book. I love your book. And um, and we communicated back and forth. And then she asked my publisher to send her an advanced copy of, of my book. Which, which I loved. Which loved, wasn't that. Loved, loved. And we realized that, that there were some themes, there were some overlapping themes, as different as the two books are, that we were both talking about women of a certain age. My my. My women are, are a little older than mm-hmm. Lala, but but women of a certain age who are figuring out how to how to move on in life and and the power of women's friendships, women's women. Safe. I I, I say you know um, men come and go in women's lives and children grow up and 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 leave home, but women friends stay. They stay friends. And and they stay friends because the connection is an emotional one and not based on activities. Not based on the fact that you both like to play golf. No, they're based on they're based on an emotional connection um, that I, and I wanted to write about I wanted to write about women's friendships. And so we started talking about what we might do together. And we discovered, surprise, that we both feel the same way about these labels, chick lit, women's fiction, all of that. And so we we submitted a proposal to speak at a conference, and uh, we decided on this title uh, of uh, Writing While Female. And um, and this is the tour. We have T-shirts and everything. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We have T-shirts. Yeah. And Terry everything. made T-shirts. Yeah, I made really T-shirts nice. for us. Yeah. And bookmarks uh, are next. Bookmarks yeah. are next on our list. Um, and yeah. so we have we have tremendous respect for each other as writers, but we also have this great now closeness and affection for each other. And so we are going. This is the launch of the. Writing, writing while female, female tour, tour. And, and we are going from here to um, we're going to Denver I'll be back here, I live in Las Vegas I'll be back here in 28th, uh, the October 20th, 28th, October 28th yeah. we'll be yeah. in Torrance yeah. and uh, then I'm going alone for a, a gig that I set up before we were we were doing this, I'm going to be in San Francisco at, at uh, Books Inc. in San Francisco um, New York City. New York City in January, and um, and so we yeah. are. Yeah, and we're both former New Yorkers. Although I think you can never really, Olivia. I think you'll agree. You can never be a former New Yorker. There's yes. no such right. thing. Right. There's no such you're a thing. New Yorker. Right. And you're a New Yorker. I, I have to add on a listen to me on a personal note. I sound like I'm on like the on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Um, I should live so long. I should be so lucky. Um, I, I'm bookending. I have a milestone birthday a week from today. So today is the 8th. On October 15th, I'm going to be 60 years old. Um, 
My much younger husband is, is taking pictures. Um, he's going to be 50 at the end of November, so we'll never be in the same decade, which I thought was kind of perverse because there's 10 months before October, so come on. And then the week after, exactly the Sunday after, we will be in Denver. In Denver, so yes. I think that's kind of a fun way to, to have the odometer do, do a thing. Exactly. Do a thing. Yeah, and, right. and we, and I'm happy to say that Terry, because I really, so Miriam and Beth and Sarah, I miss them. And it was great to read the book again because I got to spend time with them again. Terry started the sequel. Yeah. Yes, the public mind. Just Amber saying. Jack has asked for a sequel, so yeah. so I'll be working on on that. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, f- I feel um, the the structure of the book is that each of these women speaks for herself, and and I, I it's unusual to have three narrators and uh, three different narrators in a book but that's the way the story came to me you know I hear voices that's the way the story came to me I, I was a little concerned that when I finished the book that maybe some people wouldn't be able to tell them apart and this could be a problem but now many people have read it yeah, editors not, critics yeah. all, all kinds of and not one person no. has said yeah I, I couldn't I couldn't tell one from the other They're everybody very so distinct. everybody else is yeah. hearing the same voice yeah. as I'm hearing it's wonderful yeah. 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 <laughs> do should we should we open it up to sure. questions I feel like I, I suddenly thought I'm having the voice of that show on Saturday Night Live NPR what is it sweaty balls yeah. I can't, yeah, 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 right, can't wait right, to right, taste right. your sweaty balls <laughs> yeah. um, and I just have no idea why that happened because you know I don't usually speak this way I'm like <laughs> you know so so and and just as inappropriate as just speaking for me as inappropriate a question as possible would be would be lovely. Yeah, yeah. shout them out kids shout them out any any old question yeah I am fascinated by character names and clearly you think they're important because Chuck became Bruce yes I'm, I'm glad you never serve chuck roasting before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have a, a, a process for naming characters? It's a great question because uh, originally I had four characters. I had four women. The, the, the idea for my book came from a short story I wrote about a friend who had lost her child. And I was writing about the friendship the fr- the friends who surrounded her with love and support after that happened and and friends from every era of her life showed up to be there for her and i thought this is this is a story so i wrote a short story and i had the one who had lost her child and then and then three others and i named them for the four women in little women and then I thought, eh, maybe a little tacky, maybe a little, you know, a little hokey. I, I, you know, I didn't know. And then as I, I, I showed the short, short story to a couple of my colleagues. You know, I was teaching at Hunter and Fordham in New York, and, and everybody around me, was, we were all writers, and so it was easy to get feedback. And, and I got feedback from several people who said, the story is compelling, but it doesn't feel like a short story. It feels like it's a piece of something bigger. And maybe that was because I had too many characters. That you know, that may have been part of it. And so, I dropped one of the characters as I started to write because it, it just did seem like too much. I didn't hear her voice clearly enough, and I kept Beth. Um, I have a good friend whose middle name is Beth, so I kept I, I, I kept Beth. The other two names I wanted kind of old fashioned names, as Sarah and Miriam were, were old-fashioned names, but still believable for my generation. 
I wanted I, I wanted kind of classic names and, and so that's it. Thanks. Terry is going to be the guest. We have several members of the Roaring Laughter Ladies Book Club here today. And Terry's going to be our guest. There'll be some roaring. Yeah. There'll be some roaring. There'll be some laughing. There'll yes, be I'm, some drinking I'm, wine. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, everyone says, a lot of people have said, how, how Lala Pettibone? Why Lala Pettibone? And honestly, the, the, the truest in vino veritas answer that I can give you is that one day I just heard the words in my head, apropos words in our head, Lala Pettibone journalist to the stars. She ends up not being a journalist. And honestly, I have no idea. I used to call my first beagle, Tom and I rescue, we adopt senior dogs, because they're easy. They nap all day. What? How is that that hard? Um, And August knows the great Eunice Petunia, um, who we adopted when she was 12. And I used to call the many nicknames. Lala was one of her nicknames. So somehow Pettibone got attached to that. So go, so go now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. What is the best writing advice you ever received? Wanna, you want to hit that first? The best writing advice I, I, I received um, when I was in college. Um, I, my favorite professor in college was a, a well-known literary critic at the time named Leslie Fiedler, and and he was, um, and we read. Um, uh, I, I took a how's this for a '60s, for a 1960s course. The course was called "The Red Man and the Black Man in White Man's Literature." <laughs> yes, right. So we 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 read. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I thank Leslie Feeler in my in my book. I thank I thank him for allowing me to disparage the last of the Mohegans. I could barely get through that book, and that was one of the books on. The, and you know, it's this classic, it's a great, great book. And he came to he strode into class. He was quite a presence the day we were discussing the, this book. I could barely get through, and he said, um, "This is the most." the most poorly written famous book <laughs> in, in the world. And when we had to have conferences with him about our papers, and when I went to see him, I said, I was so happy to hear you say that because I couldn't get through it. And he said, um, it, it's important that you be your own judge of what of what you do. And, and it's important that you develop your own standards for yourself and don't give in to other people's ideas, opinions about that. He said, even if I thought this was a great book, you have a right not to like it. And you and but you what you must learn to do is develop a strong argument for your point of view. And and so the, so listening to your own listening to yourself and it, it, well, that was probably the best thing I, I, somebody could tell a wannabe writer. Yeah, mm. yeah. Was there a lot of input from your editor from the publishing company, or did they leave you alone? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I got very, very little 
There's very little changed from the manuscript I submitted. Um, she did catch a couple of things. You know, I had uh, I have a character who who's uh, devoted to the color green, uh, except when I handed in the manuscript on one page, it was red instead of green. I, I don't know how that happened, but it but my, my editor caught it. Um, she um, she she tightened it up. She tightened up the story. I had. Um, there are a lot of people in my book. There's a lot of char- there are a lot of characters, including you know they're in New York City, they're in Paris, they're in Rome. So there are waiters, there are teachers, there are there are other people. And she said, "You don't have to give them all names." <laughs> and and just that little bit of advice that was great because it cleaned it up. It was distracting to have all those names. The other thing she said was, "Your the men in the book who are central to the book, um, they're all named one syllable ordinary names. <laughs> give them give them more interesting names. So Sam became Sydney, and and um, Gary became Gabe, and uh, you know, and so yeah, so." Um, she saw things that I didn't see. The story is the same, um, but it, I needed an editor. Everybody does. Every writer needs Every an do- editor. Everybody Absolutely. does. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Why did uh, Chuck become Bruce? Why did Chuck? Because oh, uh, yeah. Well, Chuck was um, uh, Chuck is a. Uh, uh, I named uh, a lawyer who makes an appearance at a party. He's just, you know, I named him. I had named him Chuck, and then I added a sentence that made him seem. Well, I'll tell you what it is. I, I added something that said, you know, they were the, all the other people at the table were talking about the fact that he was on his fourth wife or his fifth wife or, or, or something like that, and they're all named. They're all named. I can't remember Brittany or something. You know, all the wives are named Brittany, but they spell differently. And uh, and and so it was just a little snarky thing about him. And I didn't want anybody to think, especially my friend Chuck, who's been married forever to the same woman. So I changed it, you know, thinking I was doing something good, and he became Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, we when when Dylan introduced us, he mentioned the scourge, which is a great word of rejection, and you had had hinted to that. And just to piggyback on what you were saying, and and bring up my my John Irving again, um, a prayer for Owen Meany is my favorite contemporary novel. I I other than yours and mine, you know, and I I um I, I envy people who haven't read it yet because they have that to look forward to, and I have spoken to people who have said to me, people I love people I admire who have said oh yeah it's a great book I love that book I've spoken to people who have said oh my god you liked that book I hated that book the, the point of course being it's to me it's a perfect book and I think you can all agree there is no one piece of anything that is artistic it is impossible to please everyone it's just let that go let that idea go it's not going to happen and and in terms of writing advice, August, as you had asked, um, and Terry and I were talking about this earlier, I have a little triumvirate, and two of the people are here today, who when I get my manuscript to the place where it is at the most, most that I can do the best that I can do, I then send it to the three of them. If they sign off on it, or if they, they'll always have a great idea of how to elevate. And my question always is, is there some place where I'm, I'm missing the mark or is there some place where I'm missing a chance to elevate? Um, if they sign off on it, I know that if someone says no, it's not going to be because it's 
garbage, but because it's not to their liking. So that that was a piece of, of advice that I had sort of somehow in the aether had come to me in terms of in terms of writing. You know. Yes. That's a great. That's a great question from a fellow writer over there. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna jump in. Um, one of the big parts of my process was um, finding out that I like to sit on my couch with the dog surrounding me, with my laptop, with SVU in the background, and that's just something that. And I, when I was at the American Booksellers Association in Minnesota, and uh, and Roxanne Gay, who we all adore when she gave a talk and first she said she was a Libra and she, her birthday is October 15th I'm like oh, that's my birthday oh my god and she watches SVU and she writes low in the background so that's my process but um, but to, to Paul specifically I, I have an idea of the beginning and middle and end and I usually write a five page um, short story version in the present tense. Lala goes to Los Angeles and Lala does this and Lala does that. And when it feels good, when it's been signed off by people I respect, that's like a map. But I, I certainly allow for, um, for the characters to say, no, no I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do this. So. Uh, I have never made an outline for anything. And when I took courses where they asked you to submit your outline and your, I'd write the paper and then I'd do the outline afterwards to satisfy the teacher. I don't, I don't think in outline form. I wrote, uh, I write from the beginning to the end. Um, I did know how I wanted the book to end and uh, the first sentence of the book is I was dreaming about Paris and I knew that, that I had to Book ended again with something about Paris at at the end, um, but I wrote from page one to page three hundred and twenty four in in that order, and uh, the writing goes faster for me if I have a title. I, I I started the book without a title, and and it was slower going. And once once I I had second acts in mind, I I was on my way. Terry, what's the title for your sequel? What's the working title? I'm thinking about the working title is Sequels. Sequels. So these three women have sequels. I love it. I love that title. Yeah. And um, I I just, both of us have been writing, supporting ourselves as writers in various ways. I like my character, Sarah. I, um, I did mind-nubbing, soul-crushing corporate writing for many years. Um, Sarah has a boss. um, Sarah has the worst boss ever. And he's an amalgam of every terrible boss I had or have heard of. And if you've ever had a terrible office job, you will know this guy. Um, I I lived in Philadelphia for a while, and and on my way to my terrible corporate job, there was a radio station I'd listened to, and they had a bad boss contest where people sent in stories. They say you wrote on a postcard and you sent your your story in um, about your terrible boss, and if you won the contest for the week, they sent your department anonymously. They sent pizza for the people in the department. Department and and those stories stayed with me too and so um, but but I think I it's important when you're having this conversation to talk about rejection to talk about 
uh, tenacity and, and, and rejection. If you are sensitive, and I, I'm sure we're in L.A., I'm sure a lot of you are, are artists, performers, you know, in the entertainment business, so you know this story. But if you are sensitive to rejection, you're in the wrong business, uh, being a writer, because it is, it is, um, and and I I collected enough rejection letters on this book alone. And I've been a writer all my life. I wrote a magazine column. I've had pub- poetry published. I've edited academic articles, and I, I edited a book for, for for I edited a book on a mystical. 19th century rabbi. Really, I did. And and still, over the years, and especially for this book alone, I probably collected enough rejection letters to line the walls of this store. And all you can do is, is take a breath and resubmit it. And I got rejection letters from people who couldn't spell. And the, the and New Yorker, not, was the New Yorker the, not? Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. I got, and, and a lot of the times what you hear, um, my, my friend Eileen and I were talking about, we've been friends since the fifth grade, Eileen Graf and I, and, and we were talking about this, she said, oh, I never hear from it. I don't hear from half the people I write to. And, and that's, you don't, that's the, the most frustrating thing you don't hear about you don't you hear nothing it goes into a it goes into a black hole somewhere your your letter and then you know the publishing business collapsed over the le- you know like all businesses did during during the break and so the big what they used to call the big 18 publishers in new york it's now the big 5 so it's harder than ever to get noticed um i uh, submitted an idea to the new yorker for a piece for a piece um, on a, uh, a, a relative of mine who was a very interesting New York character, a great uncle of mine. And um, I got a response. And I was sitting in, I taught at Hunter College, I was sitting in a room with a lot of other instructors, and I pick up my email and I said, oh my God, it's the New Yorker. And everybody gathered around the screen to look at it with me. And they were saying, you know, thanks but no thanks. And there were grammatical errors. And I'm not kidding. The New Yorker. And from the New Yorker. The and there were grammatical and punctuation errors in this four-sentence letter. But here's what happened. All the people around me were saying, hey, hey, so come here. She got a response from the New Yorker. They wrote back. They wrote back. And you're lucky to get, you're lucky to get that. So, um, so my policy is that I... I uh, throw out uh, all the letters except the ones with the with the mistakes, and then because they make me feel superior, <laughs> and and so I, you know that's how that's how you survive, and and you just have to keep you have to keep going. I would I over the years I would read books by Elizabeth Berg or Ann Tyler, and I would think. Leanne Moriarty, and I would think, you know, somebody who enjoyed this book would enjoy mine. And I'd resubmit, and I'd hear nothing, or I'd get the thanks but no thanks letters. And you'd, I just kept going. I just I kept think going. I, you know what I do with the ones I haven't heard from yet? I imagine that they're still considering it. <laughs> Even if it's been like five or ten years. I'm like, <laughs> No, they're still they're still considering it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hope's right. Yeah, and you she'll know, be back from vacation. Yeah, no, so. I'm sure she's just it's on her. Yeah, I um I also Terry, I would add to what you just said. 
especially as I've gotten older, because I think one of the great advantages of getting older is, A, you're getting older, because you're still around. And um, you can kind of just go, I'm just going to do whatever I want, whenever I want to. And so write because you want to. Do what you want. God, if it's not, make it fun, you know. If it's not fun, why bother? And make it make it a pleasurable experience. Enjoy it. And again, that harkens back. I, to I, it. I did a lot of writing over the years that was not a pleasurable experience. Right. Um, on the other hand, it's you know I wrote a magazine column, and that taught me that taught me the value of of uh, editing my work. Um, and meeting deadlines and editing my work because what you find out is if if they ask for a thousand words and you give them twelve hundred, that's not a good thing because some Somebody editor is going to decide which two hundred words to take out, and it may it may be the wrong two hundred exactly, and so and so um, so that that taught me something. The corporate the corporate work just made me yearn more and more for the ability to write fiction, and so here I am retired from teaching and 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 other things with the with the time to to do it now. And uh, but I've been you know I've been writing all of my life and um, reading. And reading and writing and reading and writing. I think you and you do. I think when you're, re, I mean, reading is just the best thing in the world. It's just yeah. there are things as good, but it's you know it's the best thing. And I think for every writer, if I the thing I would want to do if I were in my twenties and someone were telling me how to be a writer, I would just say read, just read, read all everything. the time, read everything, read everything, yeah. and, and decide everything. what appeals to you, and then know what it is about that that appeals to you, and then do that in your own voice. You know, I, 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 we've also stories. The stories that I need are stories that have relationships and that have transformation. I don't care if it's a movie, if it's a TV show, if it's a book. I need that. If I don't have that, like, you know, Woody, Woody Allen, I'm so sorry. Blue Jasmine, she was at the same place at the end that she was at the beginning. That just drove me nuts. Why am I spending time with this woman? Um, I, I need, and I also need a hopeful ending. That's just me. I need a hopeful, like La La Land drove me nuts. You, know, you made me want to have these people together, and now, anyway, spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't seen it. Oops. Um, so, yeah, read. Look at where we are. I mean, but buy a book. But for a writer, though, I mean, I wanted my book to be optimistic. I, which I, it is. I, which it's is, very I, optimistic. With all the heartbreak, it's very it, optimistic. It's, it's optimistic, but it's it's important for a writer to figure out how to how to write an optimistic story without tying everything up in neat little red ribbons that that seems um, hokey or or unsatisfying, predictable, predictable, yeah, yeah. and and that was a that was a challenge. The biggest challenge I think uh, for me was was I don't have. There aren't many steamy scenes in my book, but there are a couple of moments. Those These are, are after all, grown women, and they yeah. do have sex. And so, and so, that was the hardest thing to write. That was that to me, writing about about sex was the hardest, the hardest thing to write because my first attempts were so boring. I was embarrassed for myself. They were awful. They were awful. And then and then 
I, I got a book, um, a novelist named Elizabeth Benedict wrote a book called The Joy of Writing Sex. Oh, wow. And it's, it's wonderful. And she interviewed a lot of well-known writers and asked them questions about their process. And, um, and they said, um, most of them said, well, I really couldn't write about sex until my parents were gone. <laughs> but but um, what, I, what I finally figured out is that just like in real life, in literature, when you're, when people are having sex, less is more. And once I figured that out, the scenes, the scenes improved. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. They were good. <laughs> they were good. Those were good scenes. Yeah, get a glass of wine. Read those scenes. <laughs> yes. Heidi, have you ever um, been commissioned, like? Maybe not from a book publisher, but for for other uh, other venues for your writing, where they say, you know, we, we need a story about Mary goes to the store and buys grapes. I mean, do you have you ever had to do that professional? I, I have, um, and and I I sort of find that. It's it's great. I love I love to spend time with words, um, but but that is a challenge to to do that in your own voice because I think we always talk about the writer's voice for a reason. And when we talk about the fact that we're we're dealing with similar topics but in very different voices. And I think I'm thinking about um, one time I was hired to do a translation of a Fassbender play because I I just happen to speak fluent German. And um, the translation was so interesting because you have to capture, because the structure is there and the words are there and the story is there. But you have to capture the mood of it all. And it felt constrained. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, try to look at it in a different way and say maybe it's not a constraint, maybe it's just this wonderful challenge. And so that was great. There was one word in German, because this was, this was back in the day before the, the internet didn't even exist, and I could not find a translation for that damn thing. And I remember I called my mother, who had a heavy German accent, and I said, Mother, I forget what, I totally blocked what the word is, and I said, Mother, what does this mean? And my mother, whether it was a statement or a question, would begin every sentence with, oh. And, and I said, Mother, what does this word mean? And she goes, oh. That's not a word. Well, thank you. You've been helpful. But it was interesting only to work against the constraints of that. And I, I use the word constraints when I think about someone saying, we want a, a story about this, this, and this. And I think a writer's challenge, because of having to find a way to sustain home and hearth and wanting to find a way to do that, is to make that feel really good. I'm all about it feeling like fun. Enjoy it, you know, enjoy it. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Talk more about this uh, chiclet phenomenon. The chiclet phenomenon. You described it, Terry. You described it when we were on a lovely show called Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. And you described it, I, I forget the word you used, but as a way of identifying. You know, it's, it's, this is a drama, this is a comedy, this is chiclet. And it conjures up, I'm assuming, images for all of us. Um, I, I hate to be. I hate to be negative. I just find it. I, I, I just 
don't like it. I don't like chiclet. I don't like women's fiction. Um, I know it's an identifier, but again, I keep coming back to, I will pick up a novel that's, that has a male protagonist, and I'm not going to say, oh, it's... It's, it's m- male It's yeah. male literature. And I don't know, I don't know if guy, you have a, Guy what do you literature. Do with that? What do you do with... What, I, what, yeah, what, what, especially, I mean, if there's a soapbox, I'd stand on it right now. But I mean, especially now when I feel like women are being... Treated terribly. You know, I feel like we have to just stand up and say, no, this is fiction. It's not a compliment. It's it's it, you know if you say a book is is a, a mystery or those are identifiers right or a, a romance that's an identifier. Chicklet has a connotation. It sounds it, it diminishes. Which man would pick up a book that's described as chiclet? I just don't know who would. Yeah, you know. so it, it, it adds, makes me sad. Yes, and and women's literature is is also it just it marginalizes women writers. Yeah. Yep. in a way that's not helpful. And I don't know what, I honestly don't know what to do. Why I don't know if, if um, can a movement start? You know, can we start it today? I mean, what do we do as writers? I just, I just, what do we do as readers? I don't know. Um, I, I, there's an article, um, I wrote an, I wrote something for our blog, on, on our publisher's blog. Um, it, it seems that, that, um, Publishers look for, you know, they look for handy, you know, hand And there's a short story by Curtis Sittenfeld. I don't know if you've ever read her fiction. She's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful novelist. Writer, yeah. And and she she has a, a short story that she wrote about a woman, two people who were in college together. They were in some highfalutin writing program. And they graduate, and he goes on to write serious fiction. And she writes, she said, her book is the kind of book that that um, people give their mothers when mom is recovering from knee surgery. <laughs> and she says that that her book is is um, that she sold many more books than he has. But twenty years after school, now she's. She's making a lot of money. She's she's selling books, but he's the one who gets invited on public radio to talk about the future of American literature. Yeah. So, it just makes me want to shriek my head off. You know, yeah, I'm assuming. Right? Yeah, it's for yeah. reviewers. Yeah. I think from reviewers. Yeah. And you, you all saw the Emmys, right? I mean, Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies did fabulously. And I mean, do, do, I've read all, binge read all her books because our book club read some of her stuff. And you know, it's, it, did, did, the, did we see that show as being chiclet? I, I don't, it's sort of a question. I don't think so. I mean, it was just this wonderful limited series on HBO. Now, of course, interest. I just realized, of course, David E. Kelly wrote the wrote the script. So. I keep every time I keep nodding, I keep hitting this thing with my with my formerly Roman nose that was was changed. Um, you had a question. Yeah. Yes. I love the title. Is there is there is there a website? Is there a the ageless the rebellion. ageless rebellion? I will Thank like you. it. The second, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's Thank fantastic. You. So Instagram and Facebook, the ageless rebellion. Get on it. Are you from Germany? Yes. Where? Where from? 
Oh, that's in the north. As my mother would say, oh yeah, the north. Because she was from Regensburg, which was in the south. And as you all know, Germany was not unified till 1871. We all knew that. You Absolutely. all knew that. We all knew yeah. that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And same with Italy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. yeah, Italy is still not unified. That's right. <laughs> that's that's right. just, there's, exactly. no, there's nothing unified I, about I it. I love that, but let's, let's all, can we all just, men in the crowd, please support us in this. Please, we need you. We need you. What's that? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So <laughs> I will sign it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to, to check that out. More questions. More questions. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I'm going to hearken to Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which if you haven't read, oh my God, please get it right now. Get it here. We're in a bookstore. There's also another great book, by the way, uh, Writing from the Inside Out by Dennis Palumbo, who is now a therapist and was the screenwriter of one of the best movies ever made, My Favorite Year, with Peter O'Toole. If you haven't seen it, watch it tonight. Have a glass of wine. Go watch it tonight. Um, She talks about... She has on her desk a a frame that is one inch square. And on the days when she's tired, when there's too much going on, when maybe she doesn't feel the muse calling, she says, you know what? I can sit down and I can fill in one inch of blank paper. Um, If you take... So a double space manuscript, let's say it's 85,000 words, it's 90,000 words. If you were to sit for, if you want, again, if you want to, if you were to sit for 15 minutes a day and write one double space page, and I guarantee you once you start, it's going to be four pages, it's going to be five pages, you'll have a manuscript at the end of every year. I think we can probably all find 15 minutes. So that, to me, whenever I felt overwhelmed, it's, it's that journey of a thousand miles with a single step. If I felt overwhelmed, oh my gosh, I have to, to write. Um, when I started the sequel for Lala, oh wow, that's going to be 400 and change pages. As she says, as her father, the title of the book is her father, her brother leaves a, a report on birds for the last minute that's due in school the next day, and he just the father says, son, just take it bird by bird. <laughs> I think that's really good advice for anything, you know. Just for put anything. one. So that's, that, that would be how yeah. I do. Terry. I don't know if you have any magical... I, um, um, I'm pretty disciplined. I'm pretty disciplined, and even when I was when I was uh, working in nine to five, you know, corporate jobs, I um, I always wrote. I wrote for a magazine. I wrote poetry. I did something that fed that part of my brain because I need I, I, I needed to keep that to keep that alive. And in the times when I freelanced rather than working in house, um, inspiration comes when the phone bill is due. I mean, you really you learn you learn to write because that's how you make your living, and 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 you do it. I, it's yeah. just. Yeah. yeah, I think there again. I'm just gonna being a woman of a certain age is kind of fun because you can just go. Well, again, I'm gonna do what I feel like doing now. Yeah. Yeah. The kids are grown or the dogs are sleeping, <laughs> which is the equivalent of the kids are grown. I never adopt puppies because they're way too much work. God, <laughs> you know, just take a na- have have a walk, have breakfast, <laughs> take a nap. Yeah. Um, more more questions. Shout them out, kids. Yeah. Yes. I have a technical one. You have a technical one. So I have a question. You have quotes at the beginning of each chapter. I've read lots of books that have quotes. They're not always the same or seem to have the same purpose, but I love them. 
What made you decide? To uh, all of my. Uh, and how do they connect? Okay, every chapter in my book begins with with a lyric from a, 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 a 60s 60s song. Um, music was so important to my generation. It was so it was so important. We it was the background of our experiences and um, I remember listening to the new album by Joni Mitchell. How did or, you How did you listen to it on what? And, and oh, on records, <laughs> on records, we had records, boys and girls, yeah. and yes, yeah. and eight tracks, eight tracks, uh, cassettes. Well, yeah, yeah, well, you're younger than I am. Yes, yeah. we had records and yeah. vinyl records, and and the words had they they were. They inspired us. Um, they narrated our experiences. Um, they, they, songs were music was everything to us, and especially you know the protest music. Like everybody else in every generation that age, we were falling in love for the first time. We were doing a lot of things for the first time, and so I decided that I was going to. I was going to use lyrics from songs that meant something to me. Um, and here's another little story. My, I, I, I had, um, I had uh, a lyric from uh, yesterday. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. And um, and I had, instead of Paul McCartney, I had John Lennon. Right. 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 And and, and I, in the advanced copy, in, in the first copy. My brother saw it. I sent my brother an advance copy of the letter, and he wrote back. He said, "I, I, I know I've always been the cooler sibling, but I, I need to tell you it was Paul McCartney. You should be ashamed of yourself." Thank God. Yes. No, Thank no. God. <laughs> Thank God he caught that. Yay. No, you don't. You don't need permission to 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 do it. Um, I, I what is it called? Um, uh, you're. Uh, you, there's a word for why for if you're okay. just using it in the way as a kind of reference point. Um, I'm sorry. It's in the public domain, but there's something. There's a specific is it legal. Not fair, is it not fair use? Fair use. There you go. Fair use. That's yeah, yeah, right. It's 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 called fair use, and so um, I'm not I'm not quoting long passages. Um, it's not. There's nothing about my using it that that in any way disparages the the artist who created it. All you know, all of that, and so you're allowed to have brief references like that. Often in books where they use lyrics, you'll see at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Permission. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, with permission by and and I was told I didn't we didn't have to bother with that because they were so brief and and because of the way they were used. Yeah. Are they, yeah. Are they connected to the character or the chapter? They're they're connected to the chapter. Yes, to the chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who was your favorite writing teacher at the University of Buffalo and why? Did you go there? Robert Creeley. I took a course with Robert Creeley. Yes, the wonderful Robert Creeley. Um, I did well. Well, um, I was actually not an English major, although I took a lot of English courses. Um, I was a French major at 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 uh, Buffalo, and uh, but I took. Um, I, I would. Say, I said Leslie Fiedler was my favorite. Was my favorite professor. He could. He would. 
stride into the room and and talk about um, at the time Richard Nixon and Bob Dylan and um, the Jef- Jefferson Airplane and Dante and tie it all together and it made sense and I thought about him a lot when um, over the years when I was teaching he was one of the is he still with us? Oh, I'm sorry. No, he died about 12 years ago. That's too bad. Um, I was on a I was on a bus in New York reading the New York Times and I saw that he had that he had died and I said, oh. And the woman sitting next to me said, "Are you okay?" And I and I said, "Well, yeah, you know." And I, I told her what happened. She said, "I'm from Buffalo," and I remember that name. Yeah. Eileen, did you go there as well? Yes, I did. Oh my God, stop it! Good Eileen's a fabulous. Do you know who writer. else went there? Two people. Two two people. Terry Gross from NPR went there. She was in my class. Another person in my class was Wolf Blitzer. Oh my gosh! Yes. Wolf Blitzer was a townie, though. So, so yep. Yeah. So we, so we didn't, wow. we didn't know oh, each other. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and um, now here's something about Robert Creeley. Robert Creeley, you, you know that? Uh, yeah. Robert Creeley always wore a a trench coat. Okay. Walking around campus, he wore he wore, he wore a trench coat. There's a, a Leonard Cohen song called "Famous Blue Raincoat." And and the the lyrics are, um, uh, you treated my woman to a taste of your life, and when she came home, she was nobody's wife. And I see you now, one. Uh, I see you now uh, with a rose in your teeth, one more thin gypsy thief. And he says, um, uh, the last time we saw you, you looked so much older. Your famous blue raincoat was torn at the shoulder. And the story on campus was that mm. Leonard Cohen was writing wow. about Creeley, who had had an affair with Leonard Cohen's woman. Wow. And that was, I have no idea if it's true. Wow. <laughs> But very cool. great story. We want to believe it's true, right? And it is, and yeah. I love that song. And whenever I hear it, I think about Robert Creeley and his famous blue raincoat. Yeah. <laughs> questions? 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 What was the classic novel you could not get through? Oh, that's such a good question. That's such. That, one. I have. I, I Dan, have that's such one. a good question. Um. I I started all the King's Men because yeah no kidding um, because of again just don't get me started because of our political situation and um, I just just not, I, I don't even know if it was fifteen pages I get I I'm, as I get older writers get less and less for me you got ten you got five you got one. Grab me, grab me, grab me. Um, so that one, yeah, that one. And you have another one. And and please don't hate me. I cannot make it through Pride and Prejudice. Oh no, I'm shocked. Now I'm I shocked. Can, yeah, I know. I still love you, I but I'm shocked. I can. And as I moved around in my life, and I went to apply to teach a course here and there at different <laughs> colleges, I was always afraid that the interview at the interview somehow Pride and Prejudice would come up. And the only time it did was um, when I when I went for my interview at Hunter College, um, and I I said I loved teaching 
the survey of literature courses, and I did it. My my way was to include a lot of popular culture. I like popular culture, I like movies, I like I like contemporary stuff, and I songs, lyrics, you know, whatever. And I um, and I said, I hope that's okay. And the chair of the department said, Of course, it's okay. <laughs> Everything doesn't have to be Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> you, you had found your. I do knew you, I was home. Do you not like yeah. Jane Austen at all, though? Is, is that I can't, a, I can't. You just can't. No, right. not even okay. with Colin Firth. Not even. <laughs> wow. Not even. Yeah. Wow. Or Laurence Olivier. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. I can. Yeah. Yeah. So. Questions? Questions? You know, there's snacks and wine up here. Don't be shy. Yes. Come snacks have. and wine. Everybody. Snacks and wine. And we'll sign we'll sign books. Yes. We will sign books. Should we do that now? Yeah. Let's do that. Now. You thank guys, you thank, so you so much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.